thing that can be a little controversial, actually. I've, I've been told that the limits of forgiveness, and it seems to run counter to what I've said so far, uh, what I'd like to do is to pray, and uh, to pray that God will uh, use his word and by his spirit uh, keep shaping our thinking so we understand who he is, so we understand his purposes in this world. So will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us clearly in the scriptures and we do pray that as we reflect on this whole matter of forgiveness and some of the boundaries that you've erected in relation to forgiveness that we'll have clear understanding and that we'll be drawn closer to your character, to the nature of who you are and convinced about that. Father, help us to understand your word and then to live in accordance with it. Now we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most powerful experiences, public experiences of forgiveness that I can ever remember witnessing was in a church when I was a student minister. It was uh, uh, quite a few years ago now. Uh, about 25 years, in fact. I was in church, uh, this church, for about two years and there was a family in this church, Ian and Julie, and they had three primary school aged children. We got to know them a bit, and then Ian uh, began a relationship with a woman from his work, a much younger woman than his wife, and he left Julie and went to live with her. It was hard to watch uh, Julie and those kids just battle along for a number of months and just struggle with the implications of the fact that Ian had left them and, uh, yeah, it was just hard. Then one Sunday, the senior pastor stood up. We'd noticed, actually, that Ian was in church and uh, you could imagine the whispers that were going on, Ian in church. And the pastor stood up and he invited Ian to the front to speak. Now, let me say, you could have heard a pin drop whole place was dead still. And then he explained to everybody that he had sinned against his wife Julie and his family in a most inappropriate way. And he explained that he had come back to Julie and asked if she would forgive him and accept him back. And that she had. She had forgiven him and accepted him back into the family, which was an extraordinary act of grace that he attributed to God's work in her life. And he didn't deserve it, but she had done it. And he was going to endeavour to live as the, the husband and the father that he should be to that family. And then he said to us as a congregation, he said, and I have sinned against you. I've, I've broken fellowship with you. I've sinned in your presence and before you all, and I ask your forgiveness. And I ask you to help us as a family to keep going because we need your support. It's not going to be straightforward. Afterwards, it was marvellous to see people gather around the family and just express uh, their support, their forgiveness and their love for Ian and their willingness to receive him back into that fellowship. As I say, it was probably the most profound public event of forgiveness that I've seen in a church context. 
And so it, it's with some hesitation that this morning I move on to the topic of the limits of forgiveness. I do it reluctantly because I, I don't want to distract you from the powerful work of God in forgiving people and the way in which he restores people into relationship with himself. Nor do I want to distract us from allowing forgiveness to flow in our own relationships with one another. For it seems to me by nature we are experts at not forgiving. We're experts at hanging on to grudges. We're experts at not letting go of things and being willing to forget the way in which people have sinned against us. So to talk about the limits of forgiveness, it just seems to be playing into our, our sinful sort of sides. It, it seems to be playing to our sinful nature, our self-righteous sinfulness, our ability to maximise the sins of other people while minimising our own sins. For well, we're experts at doing that. And yet there is a dimension of the character of God and a dimension here in the Bible that requires us to consider where forgiveness actually does stop. Where are the boundaries? So let's look at it together. Firstly, if you've got the notes in front of you, there's an outline in the, in the booklet. First, you want to ask the question, when does God withhold forgiveness? When does God withhold forgiveness? Remember, we looked at uh, Exodus 34 when we started off the first session yesterday, verses 6 and 7. Now God revealing his character, the nature of his glory to Moses. And he says to him there in Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. See, here is the commitment of God to forgive sinners. But, doesn't it? For it says, yet, he does not, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's loving, he's merciful, he is forgiving, but he is just. And he will punish the guilty. So here's the question I've got for you. When, when does God not forgive? When doesn't God forgive? When does he punish? A few examples I've listed for you there. There's certainly clearly the day of judgment. Now, the Bible uses different images to present the judgment that we'll face at the end of the age. Now, the reality that many won't be forgiven. You might want to jot down some of these references. Um, Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 6. Uh, it's talking about the sheep and the goats. Some uh, will go to eternal judgment and some will go to eternal life. That's the picture presented there at the end of the age. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, it pictures the day of the Lord, the day of the return of the Lord, as a day of destruction. In Revelation chapter 14, uh, verses 6 to 20 in particular, there are frightening images of the punishment that will be meted out at the end of the age. In fact, why don't we turn to Revelation chapter 14, look at the end of the, uh, the Bible, and just look at parts of that with me. For it is a, it's a graphic and a horrible picture, really. 
verses 9 to 11. Let me read from there. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. It's a picture of the the judgment and the punishment that will be meted out to those who do not worship the Lord Jesus. And it's a horrible picture. Well, later on in verses 17 to 20, it's the same sort of graphic image. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came out from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's wine bind before its grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. The point is that forgiveness is not a virtue that overrides all others. God's justice and God's punishment exists for those who will not repent. That is very clear. At the end of the age, it's not compulsory heaven for everybody. That is not the reality. Many will not be forgiven. Judgment at the end of the age. Also, there seems to be sin in the New Testament that can't be forgiven. And I'm referring particularly to the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to chapter uh, 12 of Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 12 of Matthew. Verse, uh, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. There's no sin that God will not forgive if people turn in repentance to Him, except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now let me say, quite a lot of ink has been uh, spilt on this one over the years, quite a lot of controversy about it, and uh, I'm very pleased to inform you that Andrew would love to answer any questions you have about this straight after this session. So, uh, so if the, we're going to have an open question time later on, but save it for Andrew, because this is one of his favourite areas, actually, and uh, it is tricky. Uh, obviously, it's talking about a, a willful rejection of Christ, and it's a willful rejection in the full face of the Spirit's testimony to who Jesus is. Now, the context is one where Jesus is um, opposing the Pharisees who are hearing and witnessing in their very presence the testimony of Jesus, and they reject that. They just totally wipe it off the face of the earth. They are resistant to the open work of God. 
Sometimes I've spoken to Christians who've worried about whether or not they have committed this sin and whether they're excluded. Can I say that by definition, if you're worried, you haven't? Uh, that is, because it's a, it's a sin which is a direct resistance of God to God's spirit at work in your life. And if there's some level of compassion and concern about the fact that you might have committed it, you haven't. Because the work of God is still operating in your life by his spirit. So uh, it's a sure sign. If, you, if you're not worried about whether you committed it, maybe you might have. But uh, do you know what I mean? They, it sort of works that way. But it, it's that sort of idea of the resistance. Uh, but the point of this is that there is a place where God withholds his mercy. Day of judgment, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But here's the reality when you read through the New Testament. The normal position for every single person who walks the face of this planet the normal position is that we actually sit under the wrath of God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And particularly verse 3. The, um, this section of Ephesians um, the first 11 verses paints a picture of what we were like before we turned to Christ and then by the grace of God what we are and what purpose we live for afterwards it's that sort of framework but look with me particularly at verse 3 it says all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts particularly this like the rest we were by nature objects of wrath. The people of this world by nature are objects of God's wrath. We stand under the wrath of God. That is the normal the normal setting, if you like, spiritual setting for every person who walks the face of this planet. And it's only in verse four where you see that because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy makes us alive. See, by nature we rebel against God. We saw that, the nature of sinners we rebel and we deserve the wrath of God. That is our position. But God in his generosity reaches out to us and is at work in our life and calls us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might not be judged at the end of the age. This is a, a vitally important point as you view the world or many Christians I talk to have three categories of people in this world and the categories are there are sinners there are Christians and then there are the neutrals I like to think that there are three categories there are, there are people who are in rebellion against God and that's obvious there are Christians who have escaped the wrath of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and then there's sort of a group of neutrals. They're not really that bad, but they're definitely not Christians. You know, so they're over here in this sort of... The Bible doesn't read it that way. The Bible says there are those who are under the wrath of God or those who have escaped that wrath and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, we need to have that lens as we view the world, as you view your friends, as you view your family. For the reality is they fall into one of those two categories. They've either escaped the wrath of God and put their trust in Jesus or they are still under the wrath of God. Now, that, it's actually hard to maintain that perspective in some respects. Uh, for, 
It's hard to view people as being under the wrath of God and facing eternal judgment. And yet that is the reality. And unless you face up to that reality, you will not see, see the need for sharing the gospel with other people. You will not see their desperate plight and weep for them and want them to turn and to believe. This is the reality. God is merciful. He is forgiving. But he is just and he judges sin. Here are the limits when it comes to forgiveness for God. But what about us? That's, that's the position with God. What about us? Are there ever any points where we should withhold forgiveness? Or is that only the prerogative of God? You see, the problem is God is just, he's holy, he's merciful, and I'm not, and neither are you. See, we, we don't display those characteristics of God. We actually find it tough to forgive. We find it tough to forgive the way God does. To forgive and not let sin actually enter into the equation in terms of the relationship. Also, the reality is we don't stand in the place of God. We don't execute judgment like he does. And yet there do seem to be New Testament examples where forgiveness is overtaken by other concerns. Let me take you to some of those. Uh, Firstly, there are the martyrs around the throne in Revelation chapter 6. There are those um, around the throne in heaven who are crying out to God. There are those who have lost their lives for faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the picture. And this is what they cry out. Verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 6. How long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, there's not much sense of forgiveness on their lips at this point, is there? To be fair, of course, the picture is one of judgment at the end of the age. And these saints are in the throne. They know the judgment of God will be just at that point. And so what they're just, just doing is crying out to God to be just and appropriate at the end of the age. What about the immoral man uh, that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Turn to 1 Corinthians 5 with me. I heard that some of you stayed out till 1.30 in the morning last night. So I'm going to make you keep flipping around the Bible to make sure you're still awake. Okay, keep you alert. Right. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We heard this read just a few minutes ago. Here is a man who claims to be a Christian, uh, but he's having an affair with his father's wife, and possibly his stepmother. That's what Paul says in uh, verse 3. He says, look, I've already passed judgment on him. That's an extraordinarily strong statement, isn't it? Now, I've already passed judgment on him. Verse 5, he says, I want you to hand this man over to Satan. Or back in verse 2, he says, I want you to remove him from among you. Now, verse 11, it says, have nothing to do with him. Or even in verse 13, again, they're urged to expel him. These uh, aren't exactly words of forgiveness, are they? I think there are two primary concerns that come up in this passage. The first concern is for the church, that is for the good of God's people here. And I think that's the point of verse 6. Come back to that with me. And Paul says to them, your boasting isn't good. Don't you know that a little yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough? He's saying, 
to actually allow this man in his sinfulness to be part of your fellowship will corrupt. It'll eat away at your fellowship in Christ and your faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. And therefore, you need to deal with this sin in your community. You need to actually work it through. So at this point, it's actually love for the whole church that is the overriding concern in the face of this man's immorality. But let me also point out that this strong action at this point is part of a process of wanting to see the man come back to faith in Jesus. See, he's excluded. Clearly, his sin is being identified as sin in a public way in this community, and it is serious. But Paul is concerned that the man had some opportunity to repent and be forgiven. Verse 5. It says, hand this man over to Satan so that his sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. That is that last day of judgment that he might still be rescued. Now I think that's the same idea as in Matthew 18 that we're looking at last night. How do you bring someone to repentance and to salvation? Well, not by ignoring their sin, friends. Can I say that I observe this in Christian communities and I have over the years? that um, in a fellowship like this we might be aware that someone is engaging in maybe a sexual sin or some other uh, willful, destructive, sinful behaviour and instead of actually getting alongside that brother or sister in Christ and talking to them about the seriousness of the path which they are undertaking, we, we just turn a blind eye to it and pretend like nothing is going on. Can I say... To ignore that sort of sin in our community and in the life of a brother or sister in Christ is one of the most unloving things you can ever do. To fail to address sin in our community of that nature is to say to that person, in effect, I hate your guts. I don't know if you hear say that here in KL, I hate your guts. You know what I'm saying, don't you? <laughs> that is to, to not address sin is to say, I don't care about you. You don't matter to me. What I'm much more concerned about is having a nice, pleasant, quiet life with no conflict or confrontation and you can just go on in your sin and go to hell. I don't care. That's fine by me. Do you understand how dangerous that is? Friends, if you are aware of this sort of sin in one another's lives, then with the greatest love and compassion, you get alongside people and you urge them to turn and to repent and to believe. And if there is repentance, then there's a great restoring of people to the fellowship of God's people. They're quick to forgive at that point. Although here in 1 Corinthians 5, that's not the step that's taken. It's not a cheap slapping on of it doesn't matter. It is a concern for departed repentance and forgiveness that brings about change in someone's life. There's a third example, I think, where there's no uh, quick move to, re- to bring about uh, forgiveness or restoration. That's with regard to false teachers. I want to turn with me to, uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And verses uh, 13 to 15. Here Paul picks up on the whole issue of uh, false teaching. He says, For such men are false apostles deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light it's not surprising then 
if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Again, the concern is clear, isn't it? It's for the protection and the love of God's people that's on view. There is clear teaching here in Corinth about the errors about Jesus and it needs to be dealt with strongly and it's meant to be strongly strongly dealt with in the church for these false teachers are arising in the church. If you go to Acts chapter 20 when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders, again, he warns them, he says, false teachers will arise from among your number. It's false teaching from within that you need to be concerned about which is one of the reasons why you must watch very, very carefully as people teach God's word. When Andrew teaches to you on a regular basis, consider what he is saying and compare it against the scriptures. Ask the questions. Take him to task. He wants you to do that. Don't you, Andrew? He is nodding. Yes, okay. Whenever anyone teaches the word of God to your community, you have the word of God. It's been entrusted to you, not just to the person who has the microphone and stands three feet above contradiction. Okay? It's not... Right? You have the Bible. You do the courses that were recommended before. Study the Bible. Uh, apply yourself to it. Consider how you might understand God's word and build each other up. You need to be careful. Can I say it is outrageous when those who claim to be teachers of God's word lead people into error? And we ought to be offended for the name of God when that happens. In Adelaide, I I come from a a diocesan situation which is very mixed. My guess would be in my city, in my denomination, the Anglican Church, half of the ministers of those churches do not actually believe. I would not count them to be Christians. That's a strong thing to say, isn't it? I met with uh, not the current bishop but an assistant bishop that we had some years ago. Uh, because he was concerned that I hadn't allowed a bishop to come and preach at Trinity for over a decade. The reason I'd done that was because the Archbishop at the time had gone on public record as saying that he believed that all religions would ultimately lead you to God. He said it was just an accident of faith that he happened to be born in Australia and be a Christian, but if he'd been born somewhere else he might have been a Buddhist or a Hindu and chosen another path to find his way to God. He refuted Uh, publicly the death of Jesus for sin and so I determined that that man would never ever ever preach in the pulpit at Trinity now if you know anything about Anglican um, structures bishops don't take kindly to being told they can't come and preach I had a warm and friendly relationship with that man Um, not really it was difficult And yet I thought as a matter of integrity there was nothing else I could do. The assistant bishop caught up with me because he was distressed about the fact that I'd refused to let a bishop come and preach. And he came to ask me to change that view. And I said said to him, I said, I would love to have a bishop come and preach at my church. I really would. I'm not asking for everything. I said, I would just like that bishop as I looked at him across the table so it was just like that bishop to say that he believed in the authority of God's word that he believed that Jesus died for sin that he rose again 
from the dead. And that through Jesus we have salvation and through no one else. I said, I reckon if I got those four things, I would embrace and welcome a bishop to come and preach at our church. And I waited for his response. And there was silence. And then he got up and left. That man will never, ever preach in our church. False teachers, they are a blight on the face of Christianity. They, they misteach people and in effect they lead them to hell. And we must not brook their presence. We must not get into some sort of namby-pamby tolerance that says it doesn't matter. It does matter. You must be concerned for the protection of God's name and for his people. Some things are a big deal and that is one of them. There are times where God limits his forgiveness. There are times where we are meant to limit uh, the nature of forgiveness as well. There's also another area that I want to touch with you just before I conclude and that's the whole question of where uh, forgiveness brings consequences. Forgiveness brings consequences. And the reason I raise this is because it causes a lot of confusion among Christian people. Remember last night Gary raised the whole question of whether um, when an issue arose in his fellowship they should have gone to law or just forgiven the people in the situation. It was a very good question to raise and it's a question that I think Christians wrestle with in a common sort of way. It ties in with places like Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, at this point, there's a quotation being made from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah chapter 31. It's one you'll be familiar with and one that the Christians uh, uh, rely upon and love, this verse actually, Hebrews 8, verse 12. Quoting from Jeremiah 31. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. Sins being forgotten. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a lovely picture of forgiveness. God forgets our sins. Can I say that actually he doesn't? I mean, he does. Uh, Don't hear me. Don't stone me because I'm contradicting the Bible. Although you should, if I am. But uh, but he doesn't. He doesn't. That is, do you think God's got a faulty memory? You know, sort of early onset of Alzheimer's, uh, something like that. You know, where suddenly, you know, the sins of the whole world just can't remember them. I wonder what happened. You know, Uh, that's not the point that's being made here in Hebrews chapter eight. The point being made is that God does not take our sin into account see it's not taken into account in regard to our relationship with him it's not that, that he can't remember that we've done it it just doesn't figure in the equation of our relationship because of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for our forgiveness see that's absolutely critical but people tend to pick up on that verse and they say well it's the same for us as Christian people in our forgiveness of each other isn't it I mean, once someone is forgiven by God, uh, we forget and forgive too. Uh, That is, there are then no implications for their sin and no consequences as a result. 
sins forgiven, sins forgotten. They start off with a clean slate like we can't remember they've sinned. Can I say that's absolute rubbish? It's just not true when it comes to the way in which the Bible considers that. I'm not saying it's not true across the board, but I'm saying there are some clear instances where we can forgive, but there'll still be consequences or realities attached to our sin that we have to live with. Let me take, take you through a couple of them. You go to a place like Romans chapter 13. There we, uh, uh, we see instruction about how we're to submit to the governing authorities, even those who aren't Christian governing authorities. We're told in uh, Romans chapter 13 verse 3, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Now, it's instruction to Christian people about the problems you have if you do wrong before these rulers, but not the problems if you do right. It's a generalisation, but still it holds true. Now, in the teaching of the New Testament, there is no suggestion that these magistrates or judges must forgive or forget the wrongdoing done by people, the crimes that they do if they repent. And nor should they. See, an example. Um, Say uh, I, in my uh, uh, anger at some point, uh, as a non-Christian, kill somebody. And then, as a consequence of that grievous act and death to somebody else, I'm convicted of my sin and I put my trust in the Lord Jesus. Let's say that happens between when I kill a person and when I go to court and I'm charged uh, and brought to trial for the murder of that person. Now, when I get to trial, right, and the judge says, you've got anything to say to yourself, and I say, well, in between when I killed that person and now I've been brought to trial, I have become a Christian. So I think the appropriate thing is you should let me go. No. The appropriate thing is the judge should say if he's a Christian, that's marvellous, you become a Christian and I sentence you to life imprisonment. You see, his job is to properly execute justice at that, you know, that level of authority in our world even despite the fact that someone has been converted. And actually, if you're a Christian, you should want that to happen. See? There are consequences that flow because of our sin. There are also consequences uh, when it comes to our sin for Christian leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualities for a church leader are outlined in some detail. Most aren't gifts. Most aren't related to uh, the sort of skills we need to be pastors. Most are related to the question of of godliness and good character. In chapter 3, verse 7, 1 Timothy 3, verse 7, this is what it says. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Let's take the example of a man who is a convicted pedophile. He's brought before the courts uh, and convicted for being a pedophile. Let's say the man is a Christian and he repents of his sin and afterwards when he served his time for those crimes against children, he is released. Repentant, genuinely repentant and forgiven by God. Now as Christian people, because we forgive him, we should have no problems with putting him in charge of the Sunday school in our church. I don't think so. I don't think so. And it's all based around the qualities associated with 1 Timothy chapter 3. Good reputation with outsiders. You see, we'd, we'd not want him to be in that sort of situation. We'd be concerned for the name of God's people. 
we'd be concerned for that reputation with outsiders. Actually, we'd also be concerned not to put that man in a situation of temptation and to, and to put him in that sort of context. So we would never put him in charge or involved in children's ministry ever again. That would be a consequence of his sin that he would appropriately live with. That's just the reality. And it's a reality this side of the end of the age, this side of heaven, just a consequence. The same, for example, if someone was convicted of um, fraud, financial fraud. Uh, they say are convicted, they are penalised, and afterwards we say, no, there's still no problem, the guy's quite good with money, we should put him in charge of the church finances. Well, I don't think so. There's a consequence that goes with that sort of crime for the same sort of reasons, you see. And we would guard in that way. There are also other situations where your sin may lead to certain um, consequences that need to be followed through on. And I'm thinking particularly where there's restitution required. You may recall the incident with um, Luke chapter 19 where Zacchaeus, tax collector, uh, becomes a Christian, chooses to follow the Lord Jesus. And what he does as an indication of his true repentance is he chooses to repay those he has ripped off maybe up to four times what he has ripped them off. Now, in that sort of situation where you have been convicted of your sin, it's not that it's all forgotten. There may be implications that you need to work through. It may not be financial. It may be, for example, say you'd uh, slandered somebody, um, ruined their reputation among other people. You may repent of that to the person that you have slandered, but then it may be appropriate might it not, you then go and talk to all the other people you've spoken to that person about and, and confess your sin to them and say you have inappropriately slandered their name, uh, defamed them, and therefore uh, you apologise for that and set the record straight. You see, there may be consequences that just need to be followed up. There's another area too that I just want to touch on briefly, just before I wrap up. It's the idea... Uh, that people have this is what I commonly hear from Christians that they know that God has forgiven them but actually they can't forgive themselves yeah, do you ever hear people say that way you know, I know that I'm forgiven by God and my difficulty is forgiving myself I'm just so aware of what I've done and I can't deal with it in that way and I understand that you know the alcoholic who abuses his family for years and years and years. And then he he becomes a Christian, say, repents of his sin. He is forgiven by God, but he has to live with the reality of the destruction that he's actually wrought in his family, the implications of that. And that is hard to live with, the destruction of those family relationships. And yet when it comes to that question of self-forgiveness... I actually can't find anything in the Bible on it. Can you think of anywhere in the Bible where it talks about the importance of forgiving yourself? It's a very popular idea, but I can't find it in the Scriptures. What I think is the reality is that if we have sinned and God has forgiven us, then you are forgiven. You are forgiven totally, completely and finally. And in a sense, if you say, look, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself, I think actually at that point, you're not believing that God's really forgiven you. I don't think you're really trusting in the word of God. 
Your sin may have produced all sorts of ongoing ripples in the lives of other people, pain and hurt, tears and regret and ongoing sorrow. That may be true. And it does hurt to see other people suffering because of your sin when you love them. But nonetheless, if you are forgiven by God, you are forgiven. And that is a reality. And you need to allow that forgiveness to flow in your own relationship with yourself. That is, you need to believe God that if he has forgiven you, you are forgiven. Friends, I started off um, this session talking about the fact that in some ways to reflect on the limits of forgiveness is to ask the wrong question. I don't want to encourage us to fall into the trap of withholding forgiveness. Uh, We naturally do that very well, actually. We're skilled and gifted in that particular art form. Uh, We are born to it. But can I say that the right answer when it comes to these issues will always be found if you focus on the revealed character and will of God in the scriptures. He is a God of mercy, of compassion, of grace and of love. He is a God of second chances. Remember the, uh, the couple uh, that I was talking about at the beginning, Ian, stood up before the congregation? That was um, 25 years ago when that happened. So when I went back to that church just a couple of years ago, and you know, when we were going back to visit, hadn't been there for you know, a couple of decades, as we were driving there, I thought, I wonder, I wonder if Ian and Julie will still be there. Because you know, deep down, here's what I thought. I thought if I was in that situation and I'd publicly confessed my sin to this church and everyone knew what I'd done and my wife had been through that sort of situation among those people, even though it looked really good on that Sunday, you know, I thought, I thought they'd have to leave and make a fresh start somebody, somewhere else. And who could blame them, really? Went to that church... Ian and Julie, fully involved in the ministry of that church. Kids had grown up in the church. They were embraced by the people around them. They were serving the Lord Jesus in that situation. I tell you what, it was was just such a delight to see the way in which the forgiveness and the gospel had been working itself out in those relationships. They'd matured. They'd grown Friends, there are limits to God's forgiveness. But we need to keep applying the truth of the gospel to our lives. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is a verse that I just keep going back to. I just keep going back and back and back to this verse. As I think about the application of the gospel, the gospel of forgiveness in the lives of God's people. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that truth? you believe that you've been forgiven by the Lord Jesus, there may be implications from your life because of your sin. 
But before Him, you are not condemned. You are forgiven. Your sin has been dealt with through Jesus' death on the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a verse you should etch into your heart and keep going back to on a regular basis. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You're gracious and compassionate. You're merciful, slow to anger. You're bound in steadfast love. And yet, Father, we know that you are also the judge of the whole world. That sin doesn't go unpunished. Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus you have uh, allowed him to take the sin of the whole world upon himself so that we might have forgiveness. Father, we pray that as we put our trust in Jesus we will know the fact that we are not condemned. We are freed from sin. Father, help us to keep trusting in you believing in your promises and then Father knowing that we live this side of heaven knowing that there are implications because of our sin in this world there are issues that even as Christians we need to own up to to be aware of and to live with as faithful followers of you help us to have the courage to do that as a fellowship when we need to take strong action help us to do that as individuals when we need to own up to our sin And yet, Father, we pray that we'll also know that we stand before you free, loved, cherished and completely given because of what Jesus has done. Help us, Father, to believe that at this point, as followers of you, we stand before you and there is no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. Father, work that truth into our minds and hearts so that it is a thoroughgoing reality for us day by day. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.